All right. I'm excited to get into the Word. We're in a new series. We've just done one so far called Desperate Prayers. And today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can pull it out. Or if you have a phone app, uh, Bible phone app, you can, you can use that. Or we'll probably put the verses up on the screen. And I'm going to just begin by reading this portion of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. This is actually the only time that seraphim this kind of angelic type creature is mentioned in the Bible. Each of these seraphim had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, many songs have been written about this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost I think the old King James says, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Isaiah is perhaps the most widely read of all the Old Testament writers. Uh, some have called the book of Isaiah the gospel of Isaiah because of the prophetic portraits of the Messiah. Isaiah gives spectacular visions of the future that extend beyond his generation to the arrival of Christ and even the future glory when Christ returns and establishes his rule and reign on the earth. The book of Isaiah is bursting with hope. I think it's my favorite Old Testament book. However, it was written at a time of history that was very dark. The people of God were not in a good place spiritually. And this particular vision found in Isaiah 6 comes at a time when King Uzziah died, or at least the year that he died perhaps signifying a moment when things would go from bad to worse. 
Isaiah would then serve as a prophet in Jerusalem under Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and eventually the evil king Manasseh. When history tells us Isaiah was martyred by being sawn apart. Isaiah's ministry took place mainly in Jerusalem from about 740 to 700 B.C. And he was, listen, during his lifetime, largely unsuccessful from a human perspective, of course. He failed to turn the nation toward God, right? He led no national revival, but he encouraged the remnant of holy ones And he gave a vision of the glory of God through his writings that has really impacted hundreds of millions of people in the last 2,700 years. And his writings will continue to impact for years to come. This experience of Isaiah is relevant to us today because here we see a man coming up against a vision of God as holy. And he is absolutely undone by it. He faces the sinfulness of his own heart as he catches a glimpse of just how pure and righteous and holy and perfect God is compared to himself. And listen, we live in a time This is our generation, especially in this nation, when people, even those who identify as Christian, do not want to experience anything of guilt or conviction or contrition. What is popular in our generation is to claim all of God's blessings without coming to terms with his holy nature that reveals our sinfulness. I mean, people mock at making amends for sin. Like the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, my people have forgotten how to blush. It means that people can violate the commands of God without a qualm. People who believe in the Bible do things like lie, cheat, fornicate, but feel no remorse at all. Sin is responded to by a kind of shrug of the shoulders. Yeah, something everyone does. It's just one of those things. And we live in a generation that has lost the fear of the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen. But Isaiah gives us an inside look at what happens when we have a genuine encounter with a holy God. Let's read those first few verses again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord is pictured high and lifted up in a position of authority. He's the one in control of all things. The train of his robe may symbolize his glory that floods every inch of the temple. We're, we aren't actually told how 
big this temple is, how significant, magnificent the temple is, or how big the throne is, those details don't seem to matter. But Isaiah is aware of these strange creatures with three sets of wings, six wings each, called seraphim, which I read means burning ones. They're, call, they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. To repeat something three times, I think even in our English language, but especially in the Hebrew language, was to emphasize something. Jesus did that, right? Verily, verily, I say to you. I mean, everything Jesus said was important, but there's this emphasis on something that you just repeat it to bring out its weightiness. So these seraphim are declaring who God is. Holy. And they seem to be awestruck by the glory of this holy God. Now holiness, the word holiness brings a lot of different ideas. I don't know what comes to your mind immediately when you hear the word holy or holiness. We might think of legalism. We might think of uh, holiness Pentecostal churches, which I came out of, you know, years ago that had a lot of rules and regulations about everything. But just like the enemy loves to take the most precious things and put his evil spin on it. He has really robbed us of the beauty of the holiness of God. Holiness is not merely one of God's many attributes. It's actually the sum, really, of all of his attributes. Holy means holy other, transcendent beyond anything we can imagine. He is completely different from us. He is not like any created being. He is incomparable. He is altogether lovely, powerful, majestic, and eternal. God is in a class all by himself. He is, in fact, infinitely higher than all created beings. And the seraphim in his presence are just overwhelmed. With two of their wings, they're covering their faces. We're not told why, but it could be because the brilliance of the holiness of God was too much to look straight at. I mean, remember God said that to Moses, that Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, no, nobody can see my face and live. But we're not really sure. That's a theory. We're just given this description the seraphim declare that the whole earth is filled with his glory. A simple way to understand glory is to think of it as a, as a sort of display, a showing, a revealing of something. The splendor and majesty of God are displayed in our world throughout the earth, right? Through nature, in humans, in, in little kids, Right, that reflect the glory of God and the entire experience of life on earth. It all points to the holy creator. Think about all the 
diversity, all the variety of plants and animals and all the different kinds of foods and flavors and all of that. Think about it. God didn't have to do that. All of that just tells us something about the divine artist. Isaiah says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, it's unclear to me, maybe not to you, but to me, if this voice that shakes the foundations of the thresholds is God's voice or the voice of seraphim. Either way, it signifies power and might when truth is spoken. It makes me think of when I was a kid. My grandmother had this, um, this garage that the, the garage door would go up and then there was another kind of garage door that was just a full-size screen. And during uh, thunderstorms, it was just cool to be out there. You could sit in the, the little, she had it set up, little couches and little lounge chairs and whatnot. And during a thunderstorm, you could kind of feel like you're outside, but you were safe. And sometimes the clap of the thunder would be so intense that it would just go right through my, you know, eight-year-old little body and terrify me. Isaiah must have trembled to the core. The smoke filling the temple probably made it hard for Isaiah to see clearly, giving him an even greater sense of almost groping in this unknown, in this kind of mystery that he's beholding. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This here is a desperate prayer. He feels lost and despairing over the state of his own soul. I mean, he's already given so much effort in his life to consecrate you know, to be devoted. But here he's realizing that he is so wretched in view of the holiness of God that he's, he's overwhelmed. It's important to understand that Isaiah was a man of God. He was a man of integrity, virtue, godliness, righteousness. I'm sure he was sort of renowned for his passion for God, his his, uh, you know, sort of devotion to the Most High God. He was young, younger in years when he saw this vision, but nevertheless, he had a reputation. He's one of the few characters in the Bible that seemed to live a consistent walk with God right up until his death. But Isaiah is given a glimpse of God in all of his holiness, and he is utterly humbled, ruined, reduced to nothing, leveled, convicted, not of a particular sin, but really of being a sinful creature in comparison to a holy God. He says, woe is me. This isn't just a like, oh my goodness, 
kind of expression. This is actually a powerful thing. He was so stricken with his own sense of sinfulness that he actually pronounced judgment on himself. He suddenly sees himself as so spiritually gross in light of God's holiness that he can't imagine anything coming to him other than judgment. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, a man speaks. The tongue simply reveals the heart. Isaiah was confessing the uncleanness of his heart in comparison to a holy God. Now, the apostle Peter, one of the disciples, had a similar experience of being overwhelmed with his own sense of wretchedness after he denied the Lord. When he saw Christ, he said, Son of God, depart from me, for I am a wicked man. Even the great apostle Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that was actually some imagery of, they used this kind of a gross, I don't know if I don't even, well, I'll give you a little bit. They used to, they used to actually, if you killed a man, they would put the, the dead man and attach that dead person to you as punishment. And you would have to carry that body around with you that would be decomposing until it would like seep into your own body and you would die from that death. That's what Paul was likening his sin to. This body of death, this thing in me. Like what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver, who will get this thing off of me? And of course, Romans 8 is a victory chapter. Um, Thanks be to God through Christ. But we're not talking about Romans 8. When we set our hearts to seek God, we need to understand that this is what we will experience. There's a lot of talk about revival, right, these days because of the Kentucky revival and things that are happening and I love it. I'm all about revival. I've been about revival for 34 years. I prayed for revival. I continue to pray for revival. But listen, revival is not just a time of refreshing or a stir of inspiration. It's not just divine hugs and kisses or crowds and healings and miracles. It often begins with a revelation of God as holy that results in deep conviction and contrition. Contrition is to be crushed over your sin. Some so-called revivals are completely devoid of this. They are shallow uh, whipping up of emotions. But revivals from God, if you read through history, are always marked by the unveiling of God's holy nature in a way that produces godly sorrow, leading to deep repentance. Um, Go through revival history and you will see that common thread that God just shows up. He visits a people and he somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unveils something of who he is. 
and people are undone. Now, though the experience of deep conviction is painful, it really doesn't last very long. It's like the intense but quick, now I've never experienced this, but I've seen it in the movies. It's like the intense but quick pain of having a bullet removed from our flesh. You know that moment in the movie when they're like, okay, we got to get this bullet out. And it's like, oh my God, okay. So they, you know, drink a shot of whiskey or bite down on something. And it's like they dig it out with a knife and it's so uncomfortable, right? It's like the worst 30 seconds of the person's life. But then after it's out, the healing can begin, right? So with Isaiah, you get the sense that this, this deep conviction, this overwhelmed, you know, utter humiliation maybe lasted a minute. It really wasn't a long thing. He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Note that the seraphim can't even hold this coal in his hand but has to use tongs to, to carry it. Can you just picture that visual? This like smoking white hot coal, you know, just, and he's bringing it over with tongs. You get the idea that at this, up to this point is, you know, Isaiah's almost kind of like watching the whole vision from a distance, but now he's entering into the vision. He's beginning to interact with it. And the seraphim is flying toward him with a burning coal and Isaiah may have wondered, where's he going? And what's he going to do with that burning coal when suddenly on his lips, right? One of the most sensitive parts of the body. The coal is pressed onto Isaiah's lips, which is really kind of, you know, you just kind of wince when you, when you think about that. It's kind of graphic, And maybe it signifies the painfulness of God's cleansing fire. Isaiah is told after this scorching of his lips, your sin is atoned for. God doesn't merely remove Isaiah's feeling of guilt and say, ah, Isaiah, you're fine. You know, I see all your sin. Don't worry about it. I got you. I got you back. I forgive you. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, God actually removes the sin from Isaiah's heart. The atonement that takes away the sins of the prophet is the atonement of Jesus Christ in the future, right? Revelation 8 says Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I don't know. That blows my mind. This is what God does in response to our desperate cries. This is back to us. He brings a burning coal to cleanse us. Not literally, but metaphorically. Fire is frequently used actually in the Bible as a metaphor. Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The book of Hebrews says God is a consuming fire. 
Just like fire purifies silver and separates the dross from the silver, so God's fire purifies our hearts. He comes, says in the book of Malachi, like a refiner's fire. This is a huge part of the work of God. Fire burns away everything sinful within us and leaves only virtue. The purging fire of God is our only hope in our desperation over our sinfulness. Send the fire is the desperate cry of those who want to be right and pure and holy before God. Now, once the heart is cleansed by fire, it's then ready for mission. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, right? Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high and, and until you receive this Holy Spirit that comes upon you and then you shall be my witnesses. In so many words, Jesus was saying, you need to be cleansed by this fire. You need this impartation of the Holy Spirit that flushes you out and fills you with the Holy Spirit so that you can go out and be my ambassadors. When we are purged by God and filled with the Spirit, we then hear God's callings and assignments. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And that could be a whole message in itself. Now it's hard for us to understand if this whole vision is an actual place that Isaiah glimpses and this is his best attempt to describe the experience or if it's an interactive experience created by God, charged with the presence of God, sort of like a divine art installation to reveal certain aspects of God to Isaiah. Maybe it doesn't matter. It may be neither. It may be something in between, a mix of both or something that we've not really imagined. But I think the important thing is to understand what God was making known to the prophet. He was saying this, I am holy and you are not, but I will forgive you and make you holy. And I am calling you to tell people that I am holy and they will not listen. Great ministry, right? This encounter with God that Isaiah had seemed to, uh, seemed to carry him with a burning heart really all the way to his death. Now let's bring it to us. I'll share a little from my own life and, and kind of tie it into our, just our experiences. And I just want to say this, that encounters with God change us. They sort of change our soul DNA. They purge our motives. Fire burns away things we can't normally get at or even see. Now, I've, I've never been taken to the third heaven like the Apostle Paul talks about. I've never seen the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple and I've never had a seraphim come flying at me with a 
burning coal. But I've had encounters with the Lord to lesser degrees. And I'm sure that many of you in this place have your own personal encounters with God. Now, there's your daily kind of interaction with God, your daily walk with God, your communion with God. You know, we sense God's presence on a regular basis, but there are those every once in a great while moments when God seems to pull back the curtain and do something deep in the heart. My walk with God began that way in the spring of 1989. The glory of God descended upon me as I was walking along a street. I wasn't praying. I wasn't in a church. I wasn't with other people. I was just walking down a street about midnight. My soul was flattened into the dust. I fell to the ground convulsing and weeping as I became aware of the presence of the one who made me. Tears streamed down uncontrollably as the spirit revealed Jesus to my heart. And I saw the sinfulness of my heart for the first time. I thought I had seen it before, you know, because I, ha- I felt a measure of guilt for many years. But this was like cutting. It cut me to the deepest place. And the love of God was manifest. And it wasn't just an idea. It felt palpable. It felt tangible. It felt like it was streaming through me. Guilt was removed in a moment. And my heart was changed. And since that first encounter, 34 years ago, uh, I've always sought for more encounters because it it was so life-changing. And so I've hungered and thirsted for these encounters with God, and and they don't come very frequently, honestly. You really have to wait for them. But I have had many other encounters of various, sort of various forms and uh, maybe for different purposes and, you know, varying degrees of intensity as well. But they all seem to have this common element of being suddenly made aware of the holiness of God. The eyes are kind of opened somehow, right? Ephesians 1, right? The eyes of our heart are opened and we can see, kind of get the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God. Somehow God just sort of opens up the heart really wide, like opening up the lens, you know, so you can see. And in those moments, I realize my smallness. I become overwhelmed by how different my heart is compared to God's. Many times I've had the propensity to pray what Job prayed when he finally saw God. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Job had a lot of theology, a lot of knowledge. He heard a lot about God in his life. But now, he says, my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I've had times of just being overcome with almost a self-loathing and and a groaning over my sinfulness. It's an experience, again, of contrition, of being crushed 
kind of broken over your own sin. And it, it's interesting, it's usually not a grief about my entire life, like all the sins that I've ever committed throughout my entire life, but it's usually all the ways that I've fallen short since my last encounter with him seem to just like come to the surface. While this sounds painful, it is drenched with hope every time it happens, knowing that the Lord is not drawing near to condemn me, but to wash me. Even as the heart is being crushed over sin, like the peace is already beginning to flow, the heart aligns with God. Pride crumbles, which just feels so right. Inward selfishness is replaced by divine love. Motives are purified. It's almost like the divided parts of the heart that are a little dissonant, you know, all come into like a beautiful um, harmonized symphony in just longing for Christ. In many of these encounters, it's as if the heart is suddenly unleashed to spill out the hidden fears and anxieties and turmoils that just lie kind of deep in the heart. Stuff that we, we know is there, we kind of feel its presence, but we can't like get to it. We just can't seem to talk about those things with other people or even with God. And yet in these encounters, it all comes out. And there's a deep assurance that God the Father is not only listening, but he's listening with compassion. And we're changed. It's like the way, I don't know, maybe you can't relate to this, but it's like the way we maybe try to keep a closet neat in our house or apartment, but little by little, things accumulate and dust builds up until one day we just decide to take everything out of the closet, maybe clean it, vacuum it, maybe even paint it, and then put back into the closet only those things that have, that spark joy, right? No, that, that have value. <laughs> but we, we kind of have this experience with God. These encounters do that with our hearts. We, we really need these resets on a regular basis. So the question as I come in for landing here, is how can we prepare for this? Like, what, what, do we, what do we do to have an encounter with God? You know, is that something that we can, is there anything we can do or just like hope and, you know, hope and just wish that maybe one day, I don't know, maybe we'll see a, be walking through the woods and see a burning bush um, like Moses did. Or is there something that we can actually do to prepare there really is no, I can't give you an exact formula for how to obtain an encounter with God. It's hard to understand even why God chooses to grant an encounter when he does. Sometimes it's just based on a circumstance, right? Like he, like in the year that Uzziah died, maybe that was, there was something about that, you know, in the national circumstance of things. 
Or the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that God visited his people. That was a particular time. But usually encounters with God happen in ordinary times. In fact, they often happen in times of utter spiritual dryness and affliction. Those who have encountered God know that. Sometimes he lets you get lower and lower and drier and more afflicted and more like, where are you, God? And you're praying, you're exerting energy, you're hungering, thirsting, but you feel nothing. And he lets you sit in that for sometimes long periods of time when the spiritual terrain of our hearts feels like a desert and then suddenly streams of living water burst forth. Encounters usually happen away from crowds. I mean, think about Elijah, Daniel. Think about John on the Isle of Patmos. That was pretty isolated. Job, Isaiah, Moses on the backside of the desert. Paul in the deserts of Arabia for three years. I think that's where he saw his third heaven experience. All these encountered God in isolation. There are corporate encounters like the 120 in the upper room that experienced the outpouring of the Spirit or times when the glory of God filled the temple, right? In the days of Solomon and the priests were unable to, to even do their duties because like they just were overwhelmed by the glory of God. There are times of corporate um, outpourings of the Spirit, absolutely. And many revivals bear witness to that. But I think it's safe to say that if we want to encounter God... Listen, we need to, like Jesus, depart to solitary places to be alone with God. But even that doesn't automatically result in an encounter with the Lord, right? Just because you take a day off and just because you go out in the woods somewhere for four hours and walk around and cry out to the Lord, nothing may happen other than you cried out to the Lord. A person may wait upon God hundreds of times before the Lord appears in glory. The common ingredient of those who encounter God is hunger. This was the message of Pastor John Tyson who came and did the city gathering, spoke at the city gathering. He's a pastor from New York City. His whole message, his whole really life theme in these days has been this. God comes where he's wanted. God comes to those who cultivate a daily hunger for God through unceasing prayer and sort of keeping the heart right. There's a sensitivity to the things that maybe quench the heart, dull the heart. And there's a searching constantly for things that will fan the flame of fire. This preparation requires patience. Charles Spurgeon, if you've heard of him, he's a kind of a famous uh, London preacher of the 1800s. They call him the Prince of Preachers. Said this, Revivals don't come when we whistle for them. I love that. Because there's a persistence and a seeking in dry places. There's an aching in the morning and a groaning in the evening. There's tears 
in the night. David cried out in Psalm 42, when shall I appear before God? Right, you know Psalm 42 is about as the deer pants for the, the water brook, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. He was like in a dry and, and kind of weary place spiritually and just calling out, God, how long? When will I appear before you? When will I encounter you? He was thirsting and waiting and longing daily. And I'll be honest, sometimes I've waited for months. Sometimes I've waited for years. Sometimes I've waited so long that I just came to the conclusion, I don't think I'm getting any more encounters with God. I think this is it. I'm just going to have to ride it out the rest of my life and whatever, this is, this is it. Because it's been so dry for so long. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've gotten tired of waiting in certain longer seasons. I've gotten lazy. I've slowed down the prayer intensity. We can even get to a point where we begin to indulge in worldly pleasures, maybe not sinful pleasures, but we just kind of, ah, just kind of go back to our comforts. But I want to say this, if we will persistently wait upon the Lord, he will eventually come and manifest his glory to us. I know that from scripture and I know that from experience. God is faithful to his promises. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of seeking. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't give up. Wait for God to do the thing that... Now again, I'm not, this morning, I am not talking about praying for some, I don't know, whatever you want. A new job, a wife, okay? You know, like these are fine things to pray about. You know, maybe we pray about these tangible things. There's all kinds of different things that we pray about and we pray hard and long about and that's, that's good. I'm talking about a visitation of God, a tangible encounter with the living God. That is one thing we can bank on. God promises. Jesus talked about it in John 17, his great prayer. This is, this is something the Father wants to do. He wants to manifest his love to us. The same love that Jesus has for the Father and the Father has for Jesus, God wants us to experience that, right? That's Ephesians chapter three. Paul was praying that for the church. He was praying according to the will of God that we would understand the depth and the width and the height and just the, the grandness, the greatness, the loftiness, the spectacularness of just the love of God, the grace of God, the holiness of God all that God is, that we would grasp that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result would be that we would be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Listen, that is God's will for your life. And again, I hope you're getting the point that I'm not saying it's easy. 
I'm not trying to whip everybody up so you go out and, you know, pray for an hour in the woods today or, you know, pray, pray a lot this week, but then, you know, if it doesn't happen in a week, then uh, I'm going to go, you know, go back to the normal, go back to the ordinary. No, I'm not saying it. it could take weeks. It could take weeks. It could take months. It seems like the younger I was in the Lord, the less time it took. Maybe because God knew I couldn't take, I couldn't take it. I was way too impatient. So it'd more be, I feel like it was weeks. And then it turned to months. And now that I'm older, you know, into beyond 30 years walking with him, now I feel like he's like testing me with years. Like, come on, I was on decades next. But I know, I'm just telling you this from experience. God is faithful. And those who seek the Lord with all of their heart will find him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek. The greatest thing you can learn to do in this generation is to pray when you're dry. Oh man, it's easy to pray when like, like on Wednesday night, for, I don't know if, how many of you went, but Wednesday was incredible. There was a spirit of prayers, 500 people in the room. The music was amazing. Everybody's like just flowing in the current. It was like so easy to pray because everybody was praying around. And it's awesome. Good. They do it. That's awesome. It's a gift. But there are times when the prayer meeting ends, right? The worship is not there. There comes a time when it's just you and God and you have to depart to that solitary place to be alone and you have to figure out how to seek him. That's where the encounter is gonna happen. So I'm not saying it's gonna come quick. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. I have struggled with all of my heart in 34 years to sustain a deep prayer life. It's been my number one priority really for 34 years and it's hard. It has not been easy, but it is rewarding because there are times when there's just nothing like it. I don't know how else to say that. When God opens up the windows and it comes after months and he's like, just pulls the curtain open and you see something of eternity and something of his holiness it it changes you in ways that are beyond it gives you deep assurance like in those moments you know that you know that you know that this thing is real and that all the religions in this world and all the other weird interpretations of the Bible are just futile ridiculousness. And you have this deep burning conviction, this full persuasion because you are beholding something of God's glory with your own spiritual eyes. How many want that? I mean, what else do we want? What do we want, just like dead Christianity? Do we want to be lukewarm? Do we want to be nominal? I mean, how many got into this thing like, yeah, I just want to be a nominal Christian? Like, come on. I mean, God puts so much in this word to entice us, right? To entice us, to, to, to kind of pull at us, to get us to, to cry out to him for more. Well, let's take a moment right now and do it. Lord, we ask we ask 
and we're going to keep on asking that you would show us your glory, that you would reveal the love of God to us, that you would awaken our hearts to the holiness of God. And Lord, maybe that's going to be uncomfortable. Maybe we're going to have moments of just, you know, being overwhelmed by our own sin. But Lord, we want that. We want the fire of the Holy Spirit to come and purify our hearts. Lord, we pray for that as a church that we would be men and women who know God. I pray for the kids in this church, not just the youth, but even the kids, that they would be awakened to the glory of Christ and their little hearts would be transformed through it. Please, oh God, in this dry and weary land called New England, we pray that you would open up the windows of heaven and that you would show us who you are. Lord, we need that. We're not afraid of that. Yes, we will tremble to the core, but we know that you are good and you come in the spirit of purity and goodness to sort of ruin our hearts, but then heal our hearts and to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in unison, in the wonderful and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening.